Hi, I'm Mickey Lowe. Hi, I'm Bishop Todd. And welcome, welcome to, to the, the C4SO, C4SO podcast. podcast. Well, welcome back, everyone, to your weekly dose of Bishop Todd and Mickey Lowe. We're here with yet another podcast. Bishop Todd, how's the beginning of your summer? You know, it's going well. Late springs here in Tennessee kind of go up and down. So it could be warm okay. one day, cool the next, but... Doing good. Thank you. Good to good. see you today. Yes. I, I say summer because it, it's already kind of in the 90s in Tampa. So. Yeah, well. It's you, summer you, for me. <laughs> you got a whole other reality there. Yes. It's a different world for sure. Well, we are pleased today to share with you all our friend Peter Valk. Peter is the director of Equip. He's the founding brother of the Nashville Family of Brothers. He's a licensed professional counselor author, speaker, he does it all. Today we get to sit down with him to talk about how we become churches where we not only teach about God's love and wisdom for gay people, and not only do we offer compassionate one-on-one pastoral care to gay people, but we become churches where gay Christians are actually thriving according to historic sexual ethic. Peter lives here in the Nashville area, Mickey, so we see each other occasionally and I've really enjoyed getting to know him. And when I saw him a week or so ago, I told him, you know, Peter, he's so smart. He's so articulate. He's so passionate. And I just genuinely respect his commitment to living in what he sees as, like you said, this biblical ethic. Like I said, he he is a fantastic and a massive resource uh, to churches everywhere. And I, we really encourage our listeners to check out, um, equipyourcommunity.org, which is his ministry, on equipping churches, how to achieve this sort of space where uh, gay Christians thrive. We are very pleased to share today's episode with our friend, Peter Valk. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. We are so excited to get to know you and hear more about your story, and we're just so grateful for your time. Glad to be here. Uh, Thanks for having me. We like to start off by having a little bit of fun, (laughs) and we would love to ask you, what is something that you're secretly good at? Maybe like a hidden talent or something that you don't mind sharing with the public today? I don't know how secret it is, but it's definitely not something people commonly know about me that I played the bassoon starting in sixth grade. Awesome. The bassoon. Yes. And I was a first chair Allstate on the bassoon in high school. And I nearly went to school for a bassoon performance major if I'd gone to one of my other school choices. But instead uh, went to Vanderbilt, but was still a music performance minor. And then had played in some kind of ensemble with uh, with the bassoon up until the pandemic. Wow. Yeah. So I'm on a break from it right now. But part of some life goals are to get better work-life balance in my life mm. so that I can get bassoon back in my life. So, yeah. All right, awesome. Peter. So for those of us who aren't familiar with bassoon, just describe it a bit. And what's it like to play a bassoon? Like how does it uh, compare and contrast with trumpet or reed instruments or whatever? Yeah. So it is a reed instrument or, or yeah. it is a woodwind yeah. instrument. Yeah. And it is a double reed instrument. So Uh like the oboe, the mouthpiece for it is a reed, but it's not a single reed vibrating against plastic or wood Mm -hmm. instrument. Mm. It's two reeds on top of each other. The the easiest, uh, (laughs) easiest reference to give is imagine a farting bedpost. (laughs) 
Perfect. That's exactly yeah. what I was gonna say. That's 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 the example I always give. But it looks like a bedpost with oh, so funny. metal keys on it, and it sounds like the oboe, but in a register an octave or two lower. Um, oh, and, fantastic! Uh, yeah, there you go. You just, that think, is awesome, hey, Mickey. I think Peter just made podcast history right there. Yes, that is awesome. We love it. Look, so am now- I the first person to say the word "fart" on your podcast? Yeah. <laughs> well, you can say it once, but not twice. <laughs> <laughs> You've broken that record now. Yeah. Oh no! So now, Peter, what what is something that you're bad at that you wish you were good at? Oh gosh, there are so many things. But I'm trying to think <laughs> recently. Well, um, oh, I'm horrible at following instructions while cooking. Oh, oh. <laughs> like okay. I just can't seem to get myself to stick to the the recipe. The recipe. I'm the yeah. same way. Okay. Mm. No. Sometimes it's fine to put your own little spin on it. That's yeah. okay. True. As long yeah. as it comes out liking, you know, what you made, right? Yeah, yeah. That's true. That's and I'd say another made. thing is I just, I can't seem to figure out how to enjoy and appreciate poetry. Like my friends mm. send me poetry and, and, and the same with like a lot of visual art. I, I believe that I could learn to like those things in the same way that I yeah. definitely did not like orchestra music when I was eight years old. And now it's like mm. my, my preferred music to listen to. It's, it was acquired, but now I yeah. love it. Yeah. I just haven't learned to appreciate those things yet. So, and I want to, I want, I bet I want to. It's fun to have you with us, Peter. Thanks for giving us a peek behind the curtain there, Mr. Oz. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so we want to get to some practical questions, Peter, just to, uh, remind you that the audience here is largely speaking Christian leaders and or Christian lay leaders. Begin by you just defining for us in simple terms, what is a historic sexual ethic? Like, what do you mean when you use those words? For me, that phrase means uh, a belief that God's best for every Christian is either vocational singleness or Christian marriage. And, and, and I would define vocational singleness as a lifetime vocation of abstinence singleness for the sake of doing kingdom work with undivided attention. And I would just define Christian marriage as a, a lifetime vocation of marriage between one Christian woman and one Christian man um, with an openness to raising children for the sake of the kingdom. So, yeah, with those definitions, that understanding at least when I use the phrase historic sexual ethic, that's what it means uh, to me. So that's really fascinating, Peter, because you're not Bible bashing. And I don't mean to be critical of anybody here. You're not like proof texting, but I know you. So I know you're speaking from a, a, a biblical hermeneutic and from a biblical worldview, but you're speaking in broader terms. Why those, Why that choice versus a more sort of centering on a particular Bible verse or something? Yeah, so when some people uh, describe their opinions about sexual ethics, what they really offer you is not what their opinions are on God's wisdom for everyone's sexual stewardship, but they are particularly offering you what they think God's opinion is on gay sex and gay marriage and uh, surgical Mm -hmm. transition, hormonal things, whatever. I want to answer the question that people are asking, which is like, what's God's wisdom for uh, everyone's sexual stewardship? And I think it's important to answer that positively describe what God is for is much more important than what God is against. Um, And I think what God's best is, is pretty specific, is narrow, is unique. And I think it's pretty clear that there's lots of things 
that fall outside of that God's best. And it would take all day to list all of the things that fall outside of God's best, but it's much more efficient just to say, you know, in the scriptures, both kind of what what God establishes in Genesis, but also what Jesus reinforces and even expands um, in beautiful ways in in the gospels and what we see the writers of of kind of acts and the letters uh, reinforce is, is a pretty narrow, specific understanding of what, what a Christian marriage is yeah. and what vocational singleness is as an alternative, as the other alternative yeah. normative Christian vocation. What I hear you saying that feels not only just fresh to me, but not in a cheesy sense of fresh, not only just fresh, but like attractive. Like what I hear you saying is that if you look at the whole grand divine narrative from before, so when you had a Trinitarian God, before there was ever sounded, let there be light, all the way to the completion of God's fulfillment for humanity. What you're saying is there's something so profoundly positive there. Let's try to live into that rather than sort of use, you know, as it's known as the clobber text to clobber each other. Am I hearing you right? Yeah. I mean, God is not primarily a fun killer. Um, yes. he, right. he actually wants us to like thrive and enjoy the the truest belonging and the the most meaningful pleasure and and purpose and god also is wiser than all of us and so he sees the ways that we could enjoy connection in the context of community in friendship or in romantic relationship and he sees the best ways to do that the ways that will actually lead to the to to the best things and he also sees plenty of ways that we could get off track and we could just it would lead to more harm and pain for us and so yeah, when when God in the scriptures warns us against certain things, it's it, it's because He wants to prevent us from from pain. Um, yeah. And 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 while while most kind of sins are are fun in the short term, they in the long term they they tend to hurt us or others. So that's what God's warning us against. But but it's but it's not ultimately to rob us of fun. It's actually that I'm I kind of believe in a certain like version of of Christian hedonism that like God wants the best things for us. Yeah. Um, and and he and 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 he's made us to desire the, the most good and and we should pursue that. That that's yeah. part of what it means to be human is to to act on our self-interest to seek the most good. And that aligns with God's will and God's right. plan for like all of us right. collaborating together while seeking the most good to glorify God ultimately. Thank you for that. That's super helpful. Let let me ask, as Bishop Todd mentioned, that a lot of our listeners and myself included were church leaders, lay leaders, um, you know, vocational or otherwise, but we are working on cultivating the spirit in our churches where gay Christians specifically can come and know the love and wisdom of God and be mm-hmm. accepted. And, and and so we just kind of want to hear a little bit about what are some of the main struggles of gay mm-hmm. Christians, some of the struggles that they're facing in their local churches, and maybe is some of that due to what the local church has predominantly communicated in the past or present and like, what's the result of that message? Just share a little bit about some of those main struggles that gay Christians are facing. Yeah. And, and I, I kind of, I have experience or connection to this question, right? Because I'm personally a a Christian who experiences same sex attraction is committed to a historic sexual ethic um, because my primary work is helping run 
a Christian consulting ministry that that coaches churches around this exact work and how to become places of thriving for LGBT plus people according to God's wisdom. Um, and I'm also a licensed professional counselor. My my I'm specialized in in, in working with um, gay same sex attracted Christians who want to follow a historic sexual ethic. So right. yeah, what I consistently see from kind of personal experience and, and both professional um, avenues is a couple of things. So so first challenge that LGBT plus people face is, is they kind of, they grow up in churches that don't um, share clearly about God's love and wisdom for LGBT plus people. Hmm. And, and so a lot of gay people just grew up not knowing how to make sense when they noticed same-sex attractions or gender incongruence in their life when they were in their teenage years, they, they didn't know how to make sense of their story. And they were afraid that the, uh, the, the places uh, that they were growing up in and they were going to church in, they weren't sure whether it would be safe for them to right. share about that part of their story. And so unfortunately, most of them went into the closet. They, that's the metaphor that's used for LGBT plus people hiding their sexuality, their gender experience um, from others out of fear. But what happens is when people go into the closet, that is a space where, uh, and, and we know from the research, you know, on average, kids wait uh, five years between when they first notice same-sex attractions or gender incongruence and when they tell a parent or pastor. So that's a five-year gap where, where kids are in the closet. They are making sense of all this stuff in their life by themselves without the love and wisdom of their parents, often without the love and wisdom of the, of the Lord that they might receive from parents or pastors in their life. And they're alone with just the lies of the enemy and the lies of culture. And for many people, this, this, this closet um, experience, it's, it's a trauma. I mean, it leads to loneliness and, um, and anxiety and depression and suicidality and unhealthy coping mechanisms and doubt in God's goodness and doubt in God's wisdom and doubt of whether God exists at all. And then for a lot of people, once they finally get around to sharing with someone about this part of their story, finally getting around to sharing with parents or pastors, they've usually already figured out what they, what they think about all of this stuff and, and in misshapen ways. I mean, even, even in my case, while I continue, when I eventually shared with my parents and shared with other people in my life, while I continue to hold on to um, kind of the core ideas of a historic sexual ethic, I also had a lot of misshapen ways of thinking about myself mm-hmm. and thinking about how God thought about me. And, and there's ways that these kind of, these wounds of the closet, that, that loneliness, anxiety, depression, unhealthy coping mechanisms, doubt in God's goodness, all those things, they, they lingered for me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they linger for a lot of my clients. And so I guess uh, there's lots of things we could get into. But the first thing I would say is um, any of our churches that are ministering to adult LGBT plus people, chances are they spent five or more years in the closet. And chances are they've got, they're being haunted by some of those wounds of the closet. And that, I mean, I I find ends up being one of the biggest barriers to gay Christians thriving according to God's wisdom. Even if they're convinced of God's wisdom, and even if they're kind of doing their best to kind of uh, take the initiative and connect with community, this this trauma from their teenage years um, still haunts them. And so there's there's great ways that, 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 Pastors and leaders can come around uh, adult LGBT plus people and help them notice those wounds of the closet that still might be lingering in their life. Um, And then if the uh, Christian leader feels like they have the expertise to support 
a person around that they can, um, or they can uh, connect that LGBT plus person with some kind of kind of professional counselor. Um, again, not not to try to use therapy to to change the person's sexual orientation, um, but to use therapy to heal these emotional wounds from being in the closet. That's super helpful, and I think as a new church plant ourselves, um, and a lot of our listeners are clergy members who are planting churches, who who get the chance to sort of set this culture from the beginning and do the work of cultivating this sort of environment. Let me ask, Peter, what, what sort of work do you think that we should be doing on the front end uh, in order to cultivate spaces for gay Christians to thrive and to find those lifelong spiritual friendships and community. So so what is some of the work that we can be doing? I don't want to say like preventatively, but like at the front end, how do we cultivate this sort of space? In our work at Equip, uh, when we partner with churches and and help them cast a vision for what it would look like yeah. to be the kind of church you're describing, there's kind of five elements we tend to bring up. So the first is, is that our churches uh, need to be inviting all Christians to think theologically about their sexual stewardship. Yeah. So we need to make sure that's baked into the DNA of the church. I know not all listeners uh, to this kind of podcast are Anglicans, but particularly for those of us who are Anglicans, mm-hmm. you know, we can look at the lectionary and we can look at over the next two years, when are going to be all the opportunities I could speak about singleness for the Lord and mm-hmm. Christian marriage and discernment and all of the ways that, and friendship um, and, and yeah. family in the body of Christ, and also all the ways that because of the fall, our attempts to seek those things out in healthy ways are misshapen, and, 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 we, and we sometimes seek out broken things, um, mm. sinful things. And, and then we can be intentional about kind of educating um, right. everyone in our church about how to think Christianly about their sexual stewardship and then offering them uh, accountability and support around that. And this, and this isn't to make people's lives more difficult. It's that we actually think that following God's wisdom will lead to fuller life for mm-hmm. all of us. And I think some key work around that is, is I think pushing back on maybe the idolatry of romance and recognizing that everyone in their young adult years should consider both the possibility of Christian marriage or vocational singleness, um, and then make sure our churches are places where people can thrive in either of those if they feel called to it. So that's a big, that's a big one. Um, yeah. Second is I think our churches do need to be talking publicly about the cultural questions in the intersection of faith and sexuality uh, for two reasons. One, people in our churches who aren't LGBT plus people, they're doing life in their workplace or in their extended families with LGBT plus people. They need to know how to reflect the love of Christ in conversations about sexuality, but they can only learn how to do that better um, if our churches teach them how to do that better. Mm -hmm. But as well, people in our churches who may be a sexual or gender minority, they're not going to know whether that church is a space where they it's safe to share their story mm-hmm. unless this church shares publicly. Um, and, and I don't just mean uh, in, in a progressive sense. I, I, I also mm-hmm. mean like I have plenty of friends who go to churches where they are afraid that they hold, that they, the LGBT plus person, hold a more biblical view on these topics than their church does. And they're afraid that if they share with someone at their church, particularly a church leader, that a church leader will pressure them into something less biblical. So there are still people in our churches who are hesitating to share that they're LGBT plus people because they're not sure what they're going to get. And one of the ways that we can 
we can we can kind of reduce and, and remove that anxiety is our churches can be can be clear about about uh, how we answer kind of these theological and cultural questions. Um, and 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 yeah, I think that I think clarity is charity um, in that way. I think a third important element of that is is making sure that we are equipping parents to um, have age appropriate conversation with their kids before puberty about God's wisdom for everyone's sexual stewardship, including God's love and wisdom for LGBT plus people. Uh, and kind of referencing back to earlier in this conversation when I mentioned those wounds of the closet, yeah. uh, the best way to prevent that for the next generation is by making sure we share with kids before puberty so that if any kid ever notices that any of this stuff is a part of their story, they share with parents early instead of going in the closet. I think fourth and probably most obvious uh, is that we want to make sure that the Christian leaders in our churches have kind of the pastoral care skills they need to to, to support um, LGBT plus people kind of in one-on-one discipleship spaces um, instead of sending um, LGBT plus people off to, to parachurch ministries or to right. therapists. You know, we want our, our churches and, and and the people that we we pray with and we worship with and we study the scriptures with to be the people that we can make sense of these these big questions. Um, and then last but not least, if uh, churches we're partnering with are inviting um, particularly same-sex attracted Christians uh, to either steward that through vocational singleness or steward that through a mixed orientation marriage, which is an opposite sex marriage. Uh, where one of those people in, experiences enduring same-sex attractions. And there's a lot of complexity around that option, but I'm just going to put the, the, the lid back on that can of worms and set mm-hmm. that aside for now um, and say that if those are the two options that a church is offering to same-sex attracted Christians, are our churches places where anyone can do long-term or lifetime singleness well? Regardless of sexual orientation, I mean, there's there's plenty of people. There's particularly in a lot of churches today, um, more and more um, uh, single adult women who are straight, and maybe would like to get married, but but many a good number of them will will never get married. Are our churches places where they could thrive for a lifetime in singleness either? And and I just I don't know if that's true of a lot of our churches. So in contrast to that, uh, when we partner with churches, one of the the, the, the goals they have, a big part of their vision is how can we be churches that um, offer thicker family in the body of Christ uh, on a whole church level, um, but also are maybe maybe cultivating intentional Christian communities mm-hmm. um, where, where single people can find lifelong lived in human family instead of really just tiring of the revolving door of roommates and small groups. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so those five pieces I think uh, make up a really robust vision for uh, for effective LGBT plus plus ministry. Um, and yeah, if there's a, a church out there who's looking to 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 um, to incorporate those elements into the DNA of their church right from the beginning, I think that's a great time to do so um, and to make conversation about these things normal in your church culture. So there you go, Mickey. You and Travis got got there. You go. You asked for the work. Yes, you got it. <laughs> absolutely. This is why the work that you do, Peter, is such a gift because it gives us practical tools for, you know, how how to set this culture from the beginning of a church plant. And, and that's important to us. So thank you for, for that work that you do. Hey, hey. I'm from Ephraim Quokai by name. Saludos. My name is Jonathan Kinberg. And we want to together invite you to our second annual Diaspora Network Conference. Our theme this year is mutuality and mission. What does it look like for immigrants and the broader North American church 
to really partner together. The conference will be on July 28th and 29th in Austin, Texas, and it's for immigrants and leaders from C4SO who want to partner with the nations here. See you soon. I loved what you said uh, in our office hours meeting uh, about raising the bar for sexual stewardship. I kind of want to go back to that point um, sure. for a second. In your uh, Equips Five Church strategies, you say that one of the better ways to minister to gay Christians is to consistently apply God's wisdom for sexuality and invite people to think theologically about their own sexuality. So can you say more about that and this sort of invitation? Yeah, so uh, I think one of the big ways that churches that hold a historic sexual ethic can lose credibility um, to invite uh, same-sex attracted Christians to follow God's wisdom is if we uh, accidentally often um, perpetrate a double standard when yeah. it comes to accountability around sexual stewardship. And by that, I mean... Um, a lot of our churches indirectly or directly teach straight Christians that they need romance to be happy, whole people, mm. and to expect that they will get married, and that they only have to walk out vocational singleness or long-term singleness if they want to, or even seem to suggest that actually singleness long-term is less than ideal and everyone should get married. Mm -hmm. But then we turn to same-sex attracted Christians, and we tell them that they don't need romance or sex or marriage to right. be happy, and that all of them should do vocational singleness. Mm -hmm. and, um, and this double standard, I think it enables um, the enemy to cultivate a, a victim mentality um, in the hearts of, of gay Christians. Um, it makes it really easy for gay Christians to then reject God's wisdom. because And, and I've heard this whispered in my own ear from the enemy at times. I've heard the, the enemy whisper, well, straight people don't take the Bible seriously. When it comes to their sexuality, mm. why should you? Mm. Um, it is easy to listen to that voice. And it's easy to use that the inconsistency to justify me pursuing whatever I want. But this kind of inconsistent application of God's wisdom has also not worked out well for straight people. Um, I, I mean, we, we don't have to look any farther than the divorce rate among, uh, among Christian marriages and, and that they they're ending at the same rate that non-Christian marriages are ending or look at the level of loneliness among single straight Christians and recognize that the way we've been talking about sexual stewardship for all people has not been working for anyone mm -hmm. over the past decades. And so I think the solution um, is to raise the bar for everyone's sexual stewardship. Like if we really believe that following God's wisdom will lead to long-term the most goodness and fullness in our life, then, then let's do that. And, and I think what that'll look like in some churches is something that might look a little bit like we're kind of turning back the clock on some of conversations about sexual ethics. Um, but I want to be clear, we should not return to the way we talked about sexual ethics 40 years ago. We should find better ways, um, but to anchor ourselves again in the historic wisdom of the church. And so I'm thinking around, like, have honest conversations about um kind of casual romance, casual dating. And how wise is that really for Christians? How, how good is that for us long-term? Um, we need to really talk about um, the uh, um, kind of rampant um, and, uh, use of, of pornography and really the pornography ep epidemic inside mm -hmm. among Christians um, and really address that fully. I think, uh, you know, if the scriptures seem to say that, that every Christian 
should be open to the possibility of vocational singleness or open to the possibility of Christian marriage? Are Is every straight Christian in our church really considering both vocations or are they just defaulting to and taking Christian marriage? The Bible and, and, and kind of the church historically has, has seemed to understand that one of the important parts of Christian marriage, for example, is being open to raising kids for the sake of the kingdom. It's not the only important part of Christian marriage, but but um, but the ways maybe we teach about Christian marriage today that kind of kids are optional and it's a decision that you get to make without consulting the Lord mm-hmm. is a theology around Christian marriage that Christians even 75 years ago would find wild. And and, and then finally, I, a lot of our churches seem to have kind of ignored what the Bible has to say about um, unbiblical divorce and remarriage. And and again, to the detriment of straight people, like the ways we've bent and broken these rules mm. haven't ultimately been good for straight sexual stewardship over the past decades. So, so if we raise the bar for everyone's sexual stewardship, one, I think that will lead to more thriving in everyone's life. And yeah. gay Christians will see, oh, Christians are serious about the Bible. And they believe that it's actually better for them to live according to the inconvenient wisdom in God's scriptures, even if it's not what they would prefer. Mm. If they can do that, I can do that too. Yeah, yeah. it becomes plausible. It becomes yeah. mm-hmm. attainable. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Peter. Yeah. When Mickey and I were preparing for this, Peter, <clears throat> we had kind of an aha moment. The way I would put it is all of us are aware that this sexuality conversation, especially around gay and now trans Mm -hmm. is happening in culture and in a certain cultural way. But it's also happening, as you know, because you're a thinker in sort of theology proper. Mm -hmm. And then the conversation is also happening in what we might call more, more communal or pastoral ways in the church. And one of the interesting ways that Mickey and I were naming this as we were preparing was that it sometimes feels like this is more controversial amongst straight people in our churches who want us to be open and affirming than it is with actual, you know, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people. Sure. What, what do you notice about that? And what advice would you give us for dealing with that section of our communities who want us to be open and affirming and are either at least sad when we're not, or more than sad, think we're haters and leave yeah. and et cetera. One, um, a lot of straight people have loved ones, have friends who are LGBT plus people, and they have seen the ways that they have been hurt by, by ways the church has embodied God's wisdom poorly. And, and they really want to fight for these LGBT plus people in their lives. And, and they're aware of kind of the alarming rates of, of suicide and loss of faith among LGBT plus people. And they, and they feel this urgency of, I've got to do something. I've got to advocate for these people I love somehow. Yeah. Um, and, and, and historically, the only options they've been offered is, is either to kind of hold a pray the gay away answer to the problem or to a, a, a abandon biblical wisdom um, and adopt a revisionist sexual ethic. Um, it's felt like those are the only two options. And if those yeah. are the only two options, well, then clearly a revisionist sexual ethic is better. Um, mm-hmm. I think our churches haven't yet kind of cast vision for straight people in our straight Christians in our churches, a middle way of compassionate orthodoxy um, Mm -hmm. of, of embodying a historic sexual ethic in a way that actually leads to thriving for LGBT plus people. So, so I think, I think, I think there's something about straight Christians are eager to advocate for something that actually leads to thriving in the lives of LGBT plus people they know. And I think we can tap it instead of seeing that as something, um, 
um, against a historic sexual ethic, we can tap into that. And if we can, if we can show straight Christians in our churches that actually um, embodying a traditional, a historic sexual ethic uh, in a particular way can lead to the best thriving for LGBT plus people, then maybe they'll get all on board with that. Mm. So I think that's part of it. Um, I think a second part of it is maybe generally lumping in a historic sexual ethic with also uh, resistance in the church to racial justice and resistance in the church to gender equality. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that um, I'm a part of a, of, of a diocese and you guys are a diocese where, where those things aren't bundled together, where you can be um, for racial justice and you can be for um, women as leaders in the home and outside of the home and in our churches up front in front of the table. Um, and we believe it's consistent with those things to also believe in a historic sexual ethic. Mm-hmm. That you can believe one thing about two of those and a different about a third. And there's a great book on that by, um, I think the author is William Webb. And it's got, right. a, it's got a very on-the-nose title, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. That's the title. Um, but the book, um, despite the on the nose title, actually in a very nuanced way addresses, uh, the fact that these three things are not the same, uh, in the sense that it's not, well, the church got two of these wrong, so they must have gotten the third wrong. And that means we, all of the switches for each three of these cultural conversations have to be flipped the same way. No, actually it does seem like scripture treats, uh, slavery um, and gender equality different than it treats the morality of same-sex sexual activity. Mm. Um, and it might actually be most consistent to hold a position that um, your diocese, for example, holds um, on, on those three topics. So I think that's, people yeah, feel like a sense yeah. of, in order to really be for racial justice and for women's right. equality, they also have to be for LGBT plus marriage rights, including inside of our churches. And, and I think we have to show people how you don't have to be for all, you can be for two of those, but actually what's best for LGBT plus people isn't abandoning uh, biblical wisdom. It's actually embodying biblical wisdom in a different way. Um, yeah. And then the very last thing I'll say is I think there are some, not all, but some straight Christians who are advocating for a more revisionist sexual ethic for LGBT plus people, because at some level they want a more revisionist sexual ethic for themselves. Oh, uh, sure. They want a permission to, to divorce and remarry and ignore the Bible's wisdom around that. They want to ignore what, how the church has hun- historically understood to be the relationship between Christian marriage and raising children. They want to ignore uh, the call to, um, to refrain from sexual activity outside of Christian marriage. They, 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 they would like, they, they are calling for consistency. And when they they would like a low standard for sexual stewardship for gay people, and they would also like a low standard for mm. sexual stewardship for themselves. Yeah. Now, I don't think that's most people. I'm not accusing that of being most people. Sure, but, sure. But probably some people. Yeah. So, Peter, you've uh, twice in that last little answer used the word diocese, and early you used earlier you used the term lectionary. Um, most of our listeners would be Anglican, uh, not all of them, but the vast majority. But one of the things Mickey and I thought of today was, you know, you're you're an Anglican as well. Are there things in Anglican spirituality that you think are particularly suited um, for engaging this conversation? So I think a big part of the so I'd say a couple of things. First, 
Um, once I, you know, met with a great therapist and worked through some of my wounds of the closet and worked through some of my shame and internalized homophobia. And once I started to build out intentional Christian community in my life and all of those things, um, what was kind of left over as the biggest challenge to me thriving according to God's wisdom is that um, no churches I could, I visited, whether Anglican or otherwise, were places that really taught what the scriptures had to say about vocational singleness Mm. or had any idea how to, how does how to offer me family in the body of Christ or cast vision for me building or finding family in the body of Christ? And, and even when I asked my Anglican priest, uh, you know, eight years ago um, or or five years ago, whether I was going to find the kind of kind of permanent lived in family I needed at my local Anglican church, he very honestly admitted that he didn't think I would find that anytime soon. He he knew that our church was not doing this well. And so I, I think the biggest challenge I face is not the fact that I experience same-sex attraction, but it's the fact that I'm called to vocational singleness and the church doesn't know what to do with vocational singleness mm-hmm. in general, particularly Protestant churches. Yeah. So in contrast to that, I think Anglicans are in a unique position where they, they obviously Anglicanism is of the Reformation, um, but also has kind of a foot in both the tradition, uh, the 2000 year tradition of the church and a foot in um, kind of the sensibilities of the reformation. Mm -hmm. And what that means is in some ways that maybe some other denominations that, that part of why they were established was to reject Catholic teaching about celibacy wholesale and to um, overemphasize Christian marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, Anglicans have a history of actually having a healthier balance between our theology of Christian marriage and vocational singleness. And and I think there's ways that we can retrieve that and we can look to um, Anglican kind of theologians and and Anglican traditions um, and tap back into that in ways that I think will do us a lot of good when it comes to ministering to LGBT plus people. And, And then I, what I've experienced at least, um, is that, um, because of the ways that in the church calendar, in, in Lent and in Advent, there, there is space made for mourning and space mm-hmm. made for, um, recognizing the already not yetness of yeah. ourselves and of our world yeah. and yeah. of naming the suffering we all live in and will continue to live in until Jesus returns or until, uh, we, we go and sleep awaiting for Jesus's return. I think that provides a space to to kind of name and honor suffering and not have to quickly do away with it with a with a particular prayer. That's good for all people, to be clear. Um, but I think LGBT plus people, if they're going to follow God's wisdom for their sexualities, they're going to need spaces where they can name the pain of the already not yetness of their experience. And that and that space has the the tools, has the the liturgy has the the appreciation for a theology of suffering to, yeah. to kind of make space for that. So yeah. those are some things that, that that come to mind. Yeah, thanks, Peter. And and as yeah. you're speaking um, of the sort of seasonal uh, lament, uh, kind of introspection, meaning that in the best sense of the term, mm-hmm. we have weekly confession, mm-hmm. right. and and someone saying to us, in the name of Christ, I absolve you, and that's that's really great too on a lot of levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Peter kind of wrapping up our conversation a little bit, we kind of like to end on a, a hopeful note and kind of get mm-hmm. to know 
what is encouraging you personally with the work that you do with your ministry and really just in the area of human sexuality at the intersection with theology and the the work that you've devoted your life to what what is encouraging you right now about the hope of the future of the church or what's inspiring you right now when i talk about faith and sexuality uh from a variety of directions there are christians who are worried about where the church is um, or where the church ought to go. And uh, I mean, there's certainly room for growth, um, but the way I see it is, is I can't think of a better time. If, 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 if it was unavoidable that I was going to develop same sex attractions, I can't think of a better time to be a Christian and same sex attracted in the church. And, mm-hmm. and that since I mean, our churches are spaces now where I can share my story of, of experiencing the enduring brokenness of same-sex attraction. And people are not going to assume that I choose to experience same-sex attraction. They're not going to say, well, simply pray it away and, and then it'll be fixed. They, they know that those are no longer, that that's not how it works. Um, they're not going to respond to me with, with really overt homophobia and, and assume that something kind of dark and evil um, and disgusting about me just because that's the particular temptation that I consistently experience. And that's just not been true of of, of most of the the kind of decades of the church. Um, And while there's some maybe challenges from um, kind of a growing kind of influence or popularity of a revisionist sexual ethic, there's an opportunity for us to learn how to embody a historic sexual ethic in a way that leads to thriving that didn't exist for previous generations either. Um, and I don't think, I think some may be worried that just the church is too far gone and the, the momentum toward a revision of sexual ethic is, is, is too quick in a certain direction. And there's mm. a variety of reasons why, I'm, why I actually don't believe that's true. And I'm not alarmed by that. Um, instead of focusing on what momentum there might be for other ideas, I'd love for us to focus on our opportunity yeah. to yeah. embody a historic sexual ethic in a better way than previous generations have. And I really think that's the best way to, if, if you're scared about some compelling things you see elsewhere, yeah. the best way to do that is to say, okay, I'm going to get, I'm going to redouble my efforts to embody God's wisdom the best I know how. And I think that's the most likely to lead to thriving. And that's most likely to lead to people being convinced that God's wisdom yeah. is really good. A recent project that I've been a part of kind of related to that is, um, you know, we've talked a lot here about same-sex attractions and sexual minorities. And, um, but there's um, a increasingly kind of in popular culture, a conversations about trans people um, and, and, and surgical and hormonal transition and what to do with all of that. And, and I think the church is, is really behind in that conversation in terms of us having the, the, the theological understanding to engage in those conversations. Well, theological foundation. Yeah. And, and I think, because a lot of us just feel like the, the topic is really complex and we don't know how to engage in the conversation. We're, we're even quieter than we would be in conversations about uh, same sex attractions or, or, or some other people maybe in more extremes in one direction or another or even louder in a reactionary way. Um, and so we've heard from a lot of at equip. We've heard from a lot of parents in particular who are eager for resources yeah. around God's love and wisdom for people who experience gender incongruence. And, and we just released um, our, our new gender incongruence course 
uh, for parents and pastors who want to kind of think empathetically and theologically um, about gender incongruence and, and learn how to offer God's love and wisdom to trans people. Um, and, and just recently, uh, a, a cool story, and this is the, the particularly encouraging part. Um, three weeks ago, we had a, a Christian woman reach out to us over email, and um, and she said that there was there was a recent shooting at a church here in Nashville a couple weeks ago. Uh, or a month ago, and and it was revealed that the the shooter was trans, and there was some talk about whether the shooter's trans identity um, had um, motivated some of their uh, uh, reasons for 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 the this uh, this incident, this event. And the Christian woman who had emailed us, she said that she personally has been struggling with gender identity questions. And she lives in Nashville and the proximity of all of this and the closeness to her personal story, it just personally distressed her a lot and brought a lot, brought up a lot of, of doubt about um, her faith and, and about uh, the, the ways that, that God has been uh, um, kind of leading her in, in this part of her journey. And she said just a couple of days after that, she found Equip's new gender incongruence course. And she said mm-hmm. in one sitting, she kind of poured through all of the videos, watched everything. Mm-hmm. And she said it filled her with, confidence that God's mm-hmm. wisdom is true and it is life-giving um, and filled her with comfort that, that God is still good. And it just gave her the peace she needed to continue following Jesus and trusting Jesus with these questions in her life. And so that was a really kind of encouraging reminder yeah. that there yeah. are still plenty of people out there who are eager to follow Jesus with every part of their life. They are eager to get resources from ministries like Equip or from churches um, connected to your network. They're, they've not given up on, on Jesus or on the church or on God's yeah. wisdom, uh, and they're eager to find our support. And so, um, yeah, I just uh, that's been encouraging for me um, that there there is there is so much hope in the church for for these topics and the ways that we can speak into the well. And and I just consistently see that when we we put in the work to embody God's wisdom. Um, in caring um, and in kind of uh, in, in caring and, and in, in, in informed ways, um, it actually it, it it works. It clicks. Like people see the goodness in it and want it and are drawn to it. Mm. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Peter. This is awesome. Incredibly helpful and and such a great resource for us and for our churches. I I'm I'm really excited to share this conversation. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Peter. Thanks so much for tuning in to the C4SO podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to share this episode and subscribe and leave a review. It helps us to get the word out. Thanks.